Welcome to New Testament Talk, the podcast that talks about the first century revelation of God and how it continues to impact us in the 21st century. I am your host, Pastor Fred Roberts. Grab your Bible and join me as we talk about life in the New Testament. Acts chapter 3, the um, title of my sermon today is going to be Critical Contrast Uh, that we see in this example of Peter and John's day-to-day winning of people to the Lord. I think that this was done multiple times. As uh, chapter 2, verse 47, the end of the chapter says, And the Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved. I think that there were people getting saved um, just in various places, just around, around the city of Jerusalem, and people would would hear the gospel, would believe on Christ, and would come to uh, join the church and and become members. So I think this was happening a lot. And this just gives us an example of an event that occurred in the life of Peter and John. So it begins by talking about this man that uh, was there. They went up to the temple. They went to the temple at the time of prayer and the service of the temple was pretty elaborate. Every single day they had morning offerings. Uh, every single day they would have people bringing different offerings from all over, well, the world at that point, actually, um, because the Jews would come from wherever they had. This was the only place for them to bring their offerings. I mean, imagine if there was only one church in, in America or in the world, and any time that you went to church, you had to go to that church. <laughs> you know, so if they had, uh, you know, the first church of America is in, in Providence, Rhode Island. Um, so if you had to go to Providence, Rhode Island every time you went to church, and there were certain requirements or times that you had to go, you had to go every, you know, so often, like every two, you know, two times a year at least. Um, and then if you had different um, offerings or things that you did. You know, for instance, if you sinned, there's a sin offering that you had to, you know, do. Which meant that if you lived in in Sicily, you had to travel to Jerusalem to offer your sin offering. You know, it wasn't something that they did down at the local uh, synagogue. It had to be done in Jerusalem. This was, this was quite a thing. It was very busy. There, there were hundreds of priests uh, every day. And there were, there were literally thousands of priests throughout the country. Every two weeks, they would rotate the group of priests that would come. We find this in the book of Luke, uh, where um, John the Baptist's father, he came at a certain time because he had his two-week course that he had to perform the office of a priest. And the rest of the time, he was in his hometown. He would... Um, you know, teach people the law and things like that. He was, he was, you know, a very important religious figure in the community, but he only performed the office of a priest, you know, four weeks out of the year. You know, so all these priests every two weeks were, were, were shifting. So, you know, you have a lot of business, a lot of, a lot of uh, hustle and bustle, a lot of things, you know, coming and going in different ways. Before I get started, I probably should remark there's a big pressure on churches to compromise with the culture. 
you know, George and I was just talking about the definition of a church. What is a church? Well, it's not a building. If it was, we wouldn't be, <laughs> you know, you know, we're in trouble because we're a funeral home. <laughs> you know, it, so it's not the building. It, it's, it's an assembly. It's a group of people who gather together for a reason. That is a church. In this culture, we're, we're finding uh, challenges for having that. Now, I'm not going to get into all the details. I mean, it's, it's a different message altogether. But, you know, I keep coming back to this idea that a church is an assembly. And if it's not assembled, is it a church? Can you have an unassembled assembly? <laughs> you know, there's the question. There's the rub. But there's always this pressure to change things. There's always a pressure to, to revamp it, to, to make it new, to make it fresh, to make it, you know, different. They're always coming out with new fangled programs that the churches need to adopt. I mean, you know, years ago, it was the prayer of Jabez. You know, if you, if you prayed the prayer of Jabez, then you were going to be blessed. And, you know, bless God, you were going to, you were going to have victory in your life. And you were going to have, you know, this, that, and the other. It was just a fad. It's just a fad. And they always have fads that come and go. So the prayer of Jabez, then it was the, you know, the revised prayer of Jabez, and then it was, you know, what can we learn from the revised prayers of Jabez? You know, and now it's praying about, you know, the prayers of Abraham or whatever. And they do that with churches too. You know, you have the seeker churches. That's where a pastor will go and he'll do a, a poll of the community and find out what they're looking for in a church. And then he will build his church around those things. So he'll pick like the top five things that they want in a church, and that's how he'll structure his church. And the whole goal of that is to bring people in. Theoretically, it's so that they will get saved. But what it comes down to is drawing crowds, getting people. And some of them will get saved, you know, and praise God for everybody who does get saved. But a lot of them just come because they have the programs that they want. They have the things that they want the way that they want to do it. So that is kind of always this pressure to change. But the Bible says that Jesus doesn't change. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, forever. That means if Jesus were incarnated today instead of the year zero, <laughs> 2,000 years ago, he would do things the same way today that he did them then. He would preach the same sermons. He would do things the same way. He would not alter the way he did it. He did it for a reason back then, and he would do it for that same reason today, all right? Now, the, the tools might be different. You know, he might use a car to get around, but he may not. I mean, there's a lot of people in that part of the world that still don't use cars. He may, he may use a cell phone. These are tools. You know, he, he wouldn't change what he was doing. So our goal is to practice that, to practice what Jesus practiced, what he taught us to practice, the way he taught us to practice it, and emulate that today. Do that same thing that he would be doing if he were here in Manchester, Vermont, 2020. That's the goal. That's, the, that's what we're trying to do, okay? And that's what we should be doing. You know, truth is always relevant. And it doesn't matter about the culture. The culture may not want to know the truth, but truth is always relevant. They should know the truth. They can know the truth. God wants them to know the truth. And if they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the truth, they will be saved. Now, compassion is needed. You know, a lot of the arguments that, that uh, 
these new preachers come up with is that you know people are are harsh and cruel in the pre the presentation of the gospel. This is the old you know turn or burn you know type of thing that they say. You know they say that you're you're just you know just being cruel and mean and you're not you're not being compassionate. But true compassion isn't always flowery. True compassion isn't always nice or pleasant. True compassion is always caring about the other person. But sometimes caring about the other person means telling them like it is. You know, the doctor who has a patient that has cancer, you know, that patient may get upset with a doctor, but the doctor still has the responsibility to tell them the truth. You have cancer. I deal with this all the time in my field. Death is a reality. People don't like to think about death. They don't want to be faced with it. They don't want to, they don't want to consider death, but death is a reality. And sometimes you have to tell them point blank, this person is going to die. You know, there's no sense pretending that this person is going to continue to live for the next 20 years when they're not. The kindest thing is to say, this person is dying. You have weeks instead of months. Whatever you're going to do, you need to get it done. Sometimes you have to say it point blank. Sometimes it seems kind of harsh. Sometimes it seems kind of rude. Sometimes it's, you know, it just goes against everything that they're ready to hear, but you still have to do it. And you know what? Mankind needs to hear the truth. And sometimes we have to say it in a way that they're not going to like. You know, who likes to know that they're a sinner? Who likes to be pointed out that what they're doing is a sin against God? Who likes that? Nobody likes that. But sometimes we have to do it. We have to do it. Because we're sinners. <laughs> we are sinners. I was thinking about this in my closing for the podcast. You know, because I was wanting to do something that would encourage people to try to find out the truth about Jesus. Do you know that Jesus, every time that he was preaching about, you know, heaven or forgiveness or what he was doing, he always implied that there was a, a peril, that there was a danger? I mean, think about it. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. I mean, uh, who wouldn't like to hear about the love of God? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Oh, yeah, well, he loved the world so much, he gave his only begotten son. That's all positive. Oh, that's all good. That whosoever believes in him should not perish. Uh-oh. What does that mean? It means if you don't believe on him, you'll perish. See, there's a negative. And we've got to tell them, yes, God loves you. He wants you to be saved. But you know what? If you choose not, there's a danger. There's a peril. You know, there's, there's a perishing that Jesus talked about. I told you the illustration about how that uh, when I was working at the hospital in Bennington, <clears throat> I worked a night shift, and you know, the night shift we we get to a point there's a there's a period of time where there's no medications due, you know, all the charting's caught up. There's really not very much for so we sit around and talk. So we were talking about Jesus and his preaching and you know talking about heaven and stuff like that. And I don't know how we got in the conversation. I don't remember that. I made the statement. I said, you know, Jesus preached more on hell than anybody else. <laughs> or, or that he did about heaven. I said, that's what I said. Jesus preached more on hell than he did about heaven. And the nurse got mad at me. <laughs> She's like, no, he didn't. I go, yes, he did. She's like, no, he didn't. I go, yes, he did. And we went back and forth like five times. I'm like, I'm telling you, he preached more on hell than he did about heaven. And she just could not believe that. 
She could not believe that Jesus, the Jesus, the meek and mild, loving Jesus, would preach about hell. She, she just, it just did not fit in her worldview, in her mindset. Eventually, she got to the point where she said, well, well I didn't, haven't studied it. I go, I have. <laughs> it's true. And, you know, finally, you know, she stopped arguing with me about it. You know, I don't know if she ever, ever thought about it, but, you know, that's, that's what happens. True compassion is giving somebody the truth. Now, I'm not saying you have to be mean about it. You know, you don't go up to someone and, you know, and point out that they're, they're dumb and ugly and their mother dresses them funny. You know, you don't have to do all that. You know, you just point out the fact that they need the Savior. That their sins have separated them from God. You just have to point out the truth. And true compassion will always do that. Instead of trying to trick them into it. I mean, that's what a lot of people do. I was, uh, I, I was being recruited to join Amway. And I thought, you know, this would be a great thing. You know, I could work on Amway and pay my bills and, and still, you know, work in the ministry basically full time. And so I was doing it. And so they said, okay, well, you need to call somebody and set up an, an appointment with them. Or, you know, let's go talk to them tonight, you know, you know this type of thing. So I called this person. And I said, look, we got this, this great way of making money and blah, blah, blah. You know, I, I read the script, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And she goes, is this Agway? And I go, no, it's not Agway. Why don't we come and talk to you about it? And, you know, immediately when I did that, I'm like convicted in my heart. She, she knew. She just didn't remember the name. And so as soon as we got there, she goes, yeah, this is exactly what I was talking about. You know, I'm interested in this. And, you know, I got thinking, you know what? I can't do that. I can't lie to people. You know, but that's what we kind of do with, with getting people saved. We kind of try to try to sneak in there, you know, undercover, and, and then, you know, try to bring Jesus, you know, into it. You know what? No, no, don't do that. Just, just, they need to know the truth. Just honestly, sincerely, look, you need Jesus. You need Jesus. By the way, everybody needs Jesus. <laughs> they need Jesus. It, it's, it's not, it's not just a, a nice thing to have. It's not like, you know, you have your car, you have your pool, you have Jesus, you know. It's not like that. They need Jesus. And so, true compassion <laughs> is telling the truth. So, we find in this passage, though, a contrast between religion and relationship. We see the attempt of religion to help this person, which they weren't able to do, but then we see that the blessings of God came when he finally had a relationship uh, with Jesus. And, and we're going to look at that for just a few moments. First of all, we see here the attempts of religion to help this man. Now, the Bible talks about this being at the temple, specifically at what's called the beautiful gate. Now, the gate was called beautiful because it was simply that. It was beautiful. All right? They had, it was a magnificent place to enter into the temple. It walked right up, and you got to see, like, just the, the temple in all of its glory, uh, gold and shining in the sun. I mean, it was just the perfect place to enter into the temple. Temple. This had cost quite a bit of money. Herod had done extensive renovations for the temple to appease the Jews. He had spent a lot of money on this gate. And here, sitting at the gate was a beggar. Talk about a contrast. 
Here you have this beautiful edifice that leads into the temple of God. And right here beside it, you have a beggar. Dirty, impoverished, smelly, just needing help. This man was a beggar from a birth defect. The Bible says that he was lame from his mother's womb. That means from birth. From the time he was born, he could not walk. Now, babies can't walk anyway, but he had problems with his legs. Either they were deformed, um, they, they were, well, according to the implications here, they just it couldn't support him. They didn't have the strength. So they hadn't got proper nourishment during his, um, the carrying in, inside the womb. Um, or maybe they got damaged on the way out of the womb. You know, who knows? Who knows why? But he was born defective. He never got to walk or run. I mean, we were driving, as we were running or driving, we saw these two girls running and they had long hair. And it was like it's synchronized. Their, their hair was swishing back and forth at the same, same time as they were running down the road. And they were like 10, you know, and, and, you know, they were running. I was thinking, man, I'd be dying. <laughs> I'd be, a, you know, just, and just, you know, in terrible shape. But they were just running and just going and had all the energy and seemed like they weren't even straining, but they were just running along. My wife said, I remember when I was a kid, used to run like that and have my long hair you know, swishing back and forth. And uh, I never had that problem. But, you know, yeah, when I was a kid, I used to run. I used to ride my bike everywhere. I mean, I would ride all over town. <laughs> my dad, parents would never knew where I was. You know, I, I would show up at their work, you know, on the other side of town or... You know, something like that. And uh, how'd you get here? I rode my bike, you know, <laughs> just everywhere. But we take those things for granted. This little boy was born late. He never got to walk. He never got to run. He never got to do any of those things. All through his life, his, he could hear his friends out from the neighborhood, out running around playing. He couldn't do that. As he got older and older, he would hear of his friends going off to work. He couldn't do that. He couldn't go take care of sheep. He couldn't do the work of a carpenter. He couldn't do the work of a blacksmith. He couldn't do any of that. He couldn't get from here to there. He couldn't, he couldn't do anything. As they got married, had families that they could provide for, he never got that opportunity. You know, there's actually joy in being able to provide for others. There, there's, there's satisfaction in being able to take care of somebody else. There's this commercial. Uh, this man is jogging, and he's talking about um, going to dinner with his, his daughter. And he makes the statement. Um, he says, my, da my daughter gets to choose the restaurant, and daddy gets to pay. <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of truth to there. But you know what? You wouldn't have it any other way. You wouldn't have it any other way. There, there's, there's a sense of satisfaction. There's a sense of joy in being able to provide for others. He never got that. He never got the opportunity for that. From birth, he was born lame. You know, we have a defect that we have from birth. That's called sin. We have it. It is, it is true. You can go find the richest person here in this area... And they have the same defect that the poorest, most down-and-out person you can find has, and that is sin. 
We all have it. We all have it from birth. Romans 5 talks about how that uh, from Adam, we have inherited this uh, defect. In Romans uh, 5 and verse uh, number 12, the Bible says this, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. He's talking about Adam. You know, anybody who's a child of Adam has this defect that they're born with. Now, in this part of the passage, he's talking about how that death reigned from Adam until Moses, um, because the law didn't come until Moses came. But still, they had the same penalty. They still had sin upon them. And we're all the same way. It does not matter. It does not matter who you are. Uh, verse 19 says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Now this is the comparison of Adam with Christ. His, Adam's disobedience caused all mankind to become sinners from birth. But Jesus' obedience to God can make all who come to him righteous. And that's, the, that's what he's comparing here at this, in verse 19. Uh, in Romans 7, we see that this problem that we have is from within. In Romans 7, in verse number 18, the Bible says, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. In me, in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing, the Bible tells me. So I have a defect. The defect is in my flesh. I received it at birth. And it is this condition called sin. We have it. Religion can do nothing for it. Religion can do wonderful things for building nice buildings. I mean, look at the building across the street. I mean, it's a nice-looking building. I look at the, the uh, church in uh, the First Baptist Church of, of Bennington there. Beautiful building. Nice stained-glass windows. I mean, old and looks just the picturesque church. Now, it has some additions, which aren't quite the same theme, but, you know, still, it's a nice-looking building. It's very attractive. Um, the Congregational Church there, when you're coming on uh, 9 and coming into North Bennington, beautiful on the hill i mean when the sun's behind it you know you got the white spire and everything like that i mean beautiful beautiful building that's what religion does it builds nice buildings but they didn't do anything for this beggar they couldn't help him they put him on public display <laughs> here in verse um two at the end of it says to ask alms of them that entered into the temple so the only thing they could do is give him a place so he could sit there and look pathetic and hopefully people coming into the temple would give him money. Revealing of his shame, <laughs> revealing of his helplessness, all it's doing is putting him on public display. You know, our culture likes to say, well, that's brave. You're being so brave to, to reveal yourself and let yourself be seen like this and, and coming out and, and making your statements or whatever like that. But all it is is a, a facade. It, it has no lasting merit to it. They're, they're putting him out there, did nothing for him other than giving him a place to beg every day. I don't know about you. Have you ever done hitchhiking? <laughs> Anybody ever hitchhiked here? Sam, tell me no. No, I have not. Good, okay. <laughs> hitchhiking. You're hitchhiking, hitchhiking, you know, and you're wanting to get to places. I don't know. 
I feel like I'm a pretty trustworthy looking person. <laughs> when I see this person in a car driving by, I'm thinking, what's wrong? Well, you know, well, how come he didn't stop and give me or offer me a ride? You know, when, when three people go by like that, you know, I'm starting to get resentful of all these people that are just driving by. <laughs> Am I the only person like that? You know, Am I the only person that gets like, you know, you know, why are you passing me by? You know, I, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm not going to rob you. It's just, I just need to ride down to the gas station to get gas for my car. You know, we start building up this resentment. Well, this is true amongst beggars. They start to do the same thing. They start to just resent people because here comes this rich person in nice clothes and, and able to walk, and he just walks on by. And you know, just looking at him, he, he can afford to give a little bit. He can afford it. You know, he, his, his family's not starving. He's not starving. I mean, if he just, you know, sold some, you know, bought secondhand clothing or even bought just something not the designer, you know, he could afford to give me a little bit. You know, I'm sure these things were going through this beggar's mind. This resentment that they start building up against these people that have either ability or have money there comes the point where there's just no end to the humiliation they they just get tired of being continuously humiliated the big problem is that they don't have any lasting solutions it didn't matter how much money he made that day tomorrow he would be back out they're begging for more and even if he skipped a day because he had a really good haul he'd be back out the next day there was no lasting solutions. And that's the way it is with religion. Religion does not have solutions. They talk a good game. They, they look clean and polished. But when it comes right down to it, a religion cannot take care of sin. All it can do is cover it up. All it can do is put a cloak of respectability on it. One of the big sins in even now Baptist churches is the sin of pedophilia, pedophiles, getting in, using the church as a means of preying on children. It happens. I mean, I was shocked by it in Oklahoma. You know, a guy that came and, I mean, he would sing in the choir. He was, he was, um, he knew when to say amen. He knew when to, you know, do all the things. I mean, he would stand up and give testimonies and cry about this, that, and the other. You know, all these things that he would do. He was a former sheriff. A lot of the uh, evangelists that we had coming through town, you know, he, he would say, oh, yeah, I know him. I can't wait to see him, you know, and, and stuff like that. And so you, you think that he, you know, he knows these evangelists. He's spiritual. He sings in the choir. You know, he does all the right things. And then, you know, he, he does something that uh, he shouldn't do. Now, thankfully, we caught him before he was able to you know, do everything that he wanted to do or that he eventually would have done. But what he did was bad enough. But you look at that and you're like, how can that be? How can this person be that way? Well, that's the way religion is. It gives you a cloak of respectability and all it does is hide the sin that's underneath. Look, the guy just needed to get his heart right with Jesus is all. He needed to get his heart right with Jesus. He was angry and upset because life had, had uh, dealt him a hand that he didn't think he should have. 
I mean, he wasn't willing to accept any, any of the blame for his life choices. He wasn't ex willing to accept any of the responsibility for decisions that he made, which caused him to go from here to where he was. And then when he got to where he was, he resented God for it. And so he felt that he had something due to him, and so he was going to take from others. That's sin. That's flesh. That's religion. And it cannot help. Currently, what they want to do is they want to redefine sin in other terms. They want to say, well, it's not sin. It's a disease. It's not sin. It's an alternative lifestyle. It's not sin. You know, there's no sin. There's no such thing as sin. You know, we just, we just don't understand it or it's not, it's not acceptable or, you know, this is how they want to change things because they don't have any solutions. You know, that's like the politician gets up and he says that we want to, you know, we want to lower crime, <laughs> you know, drug crime. <laughs> so they say, we want to lower drug crime. So they just say, okay, so drugs are legal. <laughs> you know, and that's how they're lowering crime. You just no longer call it a crime. Well, that's what religion does. Religion says, well, that's no longer a sin. We're not going to call it a sin. It's still a sin in God's eyes, but we're not going to call it a sin because we, we don't want to, we can't help you with it anyway. So that's what they do. But I want you to see, this isn't what Peter and John were about. He's asking alms. And in verse 4, Peter fastened his eyes upon him with John and said, look on us. Now, I don't know what he was doing. He was probably, I mean, he noticed Peter and John coming up because it said he asked alms of them. So he asked alms from them. He asked them for money. But he wasn't looking at them. He was just doing, he was just kind of just doing his thing. You know, it's a numbers game. You know, you, you ask as many people as possible. Some people give you money. And so that's what he was doing. He saw Peter and John. He asked them for alms. And then he you know, kept looking at the crowd for the next person he's going to ask for. So Peter stopped, looked at him, and said, look at me. Look on us. So when he did that, this man obviously thought he was going to get some money. <laughs> so yeah, that's what it says here in verse 5, I believe. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. So he's thinking, oh, fine. You know, you're going to give me some money? Okay. So he, he looks at him, and he's there. And Peter does something that he doesn't expect. He says, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And when he did, he took him by the right hand and he lifted him up. Now immediately, his feet and his ankle bones received strength. And instead of collapsing back to the ground, he stood. Now, religion hadn't done that. All the priests going by every day not a one of them had done anything. This was unheard of. This had never happened. They, they could not expect this to happen. He wasn't expecting this to happen. By the way, healing, <laughs> biblical healing, is always the person who's doing the healing has faith. It's not the other way around. You know, you go to these faith healers and they say, you know, they put their hand on you and they say, well, you didn't get healed. It was because you didn't have enough faith. That's not true. They have one verse in the Bible because Paul looked at someone and he perceived that he had faith to be healed. The healing wasn't done because of the person's faith. The healing was done because the person doing the healing had faith. You know, this was Peter's faith. He said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He, he was the one that exercised the faith. He's the one that grabbed him and pulled him by the hand to, so that he would be forced to stand up. 
The beggar was thinking he was going to get money. He was just looking for some cash. But let me ask you a question. Which was better? In the end, which was better for the beggar? For him to get some money or to be healed? Now he can walk. Now he can get a job. Now all these things of life that were unable to be gotten are open to him. Everything that he ever wanted in life is now available to him. He doesn't have to beg anymore. He can walk. He can get a job. He can get a family. He can have children. He can have everything that he's old, that everybody else has. He has now wide open life. All because Jesus came in. All because Jesus. This is why religion always fails, but a relationship with Jesus always succeeds. You know, the person on drugs, the person on, on alcohol, uh, all these things, you know, they come up with the 12-strip program and they say, well, you have to create your own higher power. They don't care what it is. It could be a shoebox. It could be your shoe. <laughs> Whatever your higher power is, something that you are answerable to, something that you have to give an account to, but you know, anybody who creates their own God, you know what, they can lie to them. <laughs> if, if I'm going to have my shoe as my God, if I want to go get drunk, I'll just put my shoe in the closet. You know, I'm not going to worry about offending my shoe. You know, but if you know the one true God who not only is always watching you, but he can take away the craving, he can help with the hardships that you brought upon your life, when he's there, when you need him, you know what? It's much better. It's much better. You see, he had to get his attention first. You know, uh, Pastor Torty always says this. He says, getting people lost is the first step in getting them saved. Convincing them that they need a Savior is a thing that you need to do. If a person really believed that they were on hell's doorstep, you know, they would, they would come crying to the Lord. They would come kicking. You know, you couldn't stop them. You know, they would just plow right through you to get to someone who could tell them how to get saved. That's what happened in the Great Awakening. You know, when um, the preacher stood up, I can't even think of who the preacher is now. <laughs> the preacher would stand up and he would preach. He preached in a monotone. He would read his sermon because he was so afraid of putting any type of emotionalism into the sermon. He read his sermon in a monotone and he preached sinners in the hands of an angry God. And as he's sitting there preaching this, the Holy Spirit convicted people of their need. They were so afraid of falling into hell that they were clutching at the, the, the posts of the church. That they were holding on because they were afraid that they were going to fall into hell. Yeah, you know what? People need to, to pay attention to this. We need to do something to get them to pay attention. Now, I don't know what. Uh, the Lord will have to do it. But you know what? Telling them the truth is the first step. Telling them the truth is the first step. Getting people lost is most difficult part of getting someone saved. You know what? When you're dealing with a relationship with Jesus, it's about the individual, not about the public. It's not about the public. You know, there are so many churches that all they talk about is social needs and social this and social that. They have their social gospels and their social calendars and their social agendas and programs and all this kind of stuff. But it's not about social things at all. Jesus saves people one by one, one at a time. Each individual must come to the Lord. That's what it's about, one by one, coming to the Lord. Getting this person saved, getting that beggar saved, getting this drunkard saved, getting this uh, pedophile saved, whatever they are, them coming to the Lord individually. That's what it's about. And you know what? 
that's what it'll be about for here in Manchester too. Getting just one person, worrying about one person, getting them saved, and then worrying about the next person as, as, you know, as the Lord opens doors. Here, Peter deals with this man. He doesn't deal with everybody. He deals with this man. It's not about the crowds. It's about the person. Then in the name of Jesus, he said, rise up and walk. Jesus is the answer regardless of the need. Regardless of the need, Jesus is the answer. Whether it be the rich person who is miserable because they have all their material needs met, but they're empty inside. I was listening to a, a podcast. <laughs> it was uh, this apologist named Ravi Zacharias. And he, he's got some funny doctrine, but you know, he's got good, he's got good, um, I, you know, points about, uh, well, Jesus, you know, and his, and how he's the answer for our culture. He's a philosopher, a philosopher and, um, apologist. Anyway, he was talking about this time that he was invited to spend some time with this man and his friends on a yacht. And so they were sailing you know, around the coast of Sicily. He, he would have like evening devotions and, you know, one of these guys was like, uh, you know, this billionaire, I mean, super rich. And he was talking to him and he mentioned how that his, uh, his wife and him were, were separated and possibly getting divorced. And there had been some infidelity, you know, and stuff like that. And so it was a long drawn out thing, but he loved her and he wanted, he wanted her, you know, to come back. And, you know, so this is what he said to her. He said, you know, I love you. I want you to come back. You know, I just, you know, you're going to have to stop seeing that guy, you know, but you know, I can forgive all that. You come back and, you know, we'll just make it, make it work. You know, I, I love you. I want you, uh, you know, I want this relationship to work. She said, well, I'll think about it. He, he had mentioned to Mr. Zacharias that that had hurt him. It was like a knife in his heart. But, you know, he, he said, okay, will you think about it in a couple of weeks and we'll talk again. And a couple of weeks went by and she goes, I'm still not excited. So a couple more weeks go by and finally she comes back. She goes, you know what? I'm really not comfortable with the conditions that you are placing upon me. I mean, what condition? That you not see this other guy? <laughs> you know, you have a problem with that? I mean, uh, but that's what she said, you know. And so he, um, you know, he was talking to him, and they, they, you know, they were praying and, and things. And so Ravi Zacharias asked him about Jesus. He said, well, what do you think about Jesus? And he said, you know... I just have a problem with Jesus. I mean, he just seems to, he seems to have these, you know, super high standards. I mean, here he's supposed to be loving and forgiving, but, uh, you know, he expects people to, you know, repent of the sins. You know, there's just all these expectations on him. On him. And he goes, excuse me. He goes, you just said that you have a wife that you love and want back, but she's not willing to come to you because of the, the provisions or the, the um, requirements that you have for her coming back? And you have problems with Jesus having requirements on people getting saved? You know, don't you see the hypocrisy? And he, he immediately began to cry when he realized the hypocrisy that he was showing. And, he was, you know, come, push come to say it, so he got saved. He became, he got saved because he realized 
that he was upset with Jesus for the very same thing that his wife, who was being unfaithful to him, was upset with him for. And that he wasn't doing anything wrong to his wife by expecting her to be faithful to him. Just like Jesus wasn't doing anything wrong to him, expecting him to turn from his sin and to come to him. It's an intimate thing. It's a personal thing. Everybody has a need. And Jesus will meet that need. We just have to get the message out. They healed the lame. You know what? Jesus never fails. He does not fail when he deals with the the sinner, regardless of their sin. Jesus does not fail. We mess up because we do things wrong, but Jesus never messes up. He never fails. And you know what? When Jesus is presented and preached, sinners get saved. Their lives get healed. This man jumped up, and he's walking, and he's leaping, and he's praising God. We talk about gratitude and praise. You know what? Gratitude and praise is when the Lord comes in and blesses your life and fixes your life then you have a story to tell. I think of the demoniac of Gadara. He was a crazy man. I mean, just a crazy individual. They couldn't even bind him with chains. He, he would break the chains. He was just so insane and strong and, and everything. He couldn't be bound. Uh, so they drove him out of town. He was living in the caves where the tombs were. Uh, that's where he would live. He saw Jesus one day Jesus was coming off of a ship and he sees Jesus down there the devils inside of him knew who Jesus was so he comes running down there oh I should tell you more about him he he was so miserable that he would cry out he would be up all night long and cry out and he'd cut himself with stones uh, so I mean he he was he was beside himself he was crazy when he sees Jesus he runs down and the devils inside of him begin to beg Jesus not to cast them out into the deep. And he goes, what's your name? He goes, I'm Legion, for we are many. Jesus did you know, cast them out. They said, cast us into the swine. He agreed to that. And they, of course, cast themselves. They went into the swine. And then they ran down the, the bank and killed themselves into the water. So 2,000 pigs, uh, or a bunch of pigs, just ran off the cliff into the water and died. And so the keepers of the pigs went to town. They're like, I, I don't know what happened, but that crazy guy comes running out to meet this guy who got off a boat, and you know, all of a sudden all my pigs went crazy and ran off the cliff and died. <laughs> so you know, they're, they're going to go figure out what's going on. And so all the people of the town come, and the Bible says when they come, they found this man sitting at the, at, by the side of Jesus, by the fire. He was clothed. And in his right mind. I mean, Jesus healed him just boom. Just just like that. No, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Just total re uh, reformation. Total uh, change. Well, all the people were scared. They, they had no idea what was going on. So they asked Jesus to leave. And, you know, Jesus, okay, all right. And so he's getting back on the boat. This man wanted to go with him. And Jesus made it. An interesting statement. He said, Go home to thy family and friends and tell them what, uh, friends, go home to thy friends and tell them what great things the Lord hath done for thee. Go home and tell your friends everything that's been done for you. When Jesus came back to this area, they brought 
everybody out. They were bringing all the sick. They brought everybody out. And many people were saved and, and healed. And, and Jesus did the same miracles that he did in other places he did in this area. But it's all because of this one person that Jesus changed the life of. He went home and told everybody he knew about it. How that Jesus had made a difference in his life. That's what happens when Jesus moves in. When Jesus moves in, he changes lives. They go and they tell people what Jesus did for them. And you know what? That makes people curious. What can Jesus do for me? You know, I have problems too. I have heartaches. I have difficulties. I have sin. And I need help with it. They'll come to Jesus and they also can be helped. You see, Jesus is the answer. We just need to tell them. We need to have our testimony and let them know what God's doing in our life. The greatest witness that you have is what Jesus has done for you. Thank you for joining us on New Testament Talk. New Testament Talk is a publication of New Testament Baptist Church in Manchester Center, Vermont. If you would like to talk with us in person, visit our Facebook page, New Testament Baptist Church NTBC. That's New Testament Baptist Church NTBC. Until next time, this is Pastor Fred Roberts reminding you of the greatest truth of the New Testament. The truth can be known God wants you to know it, and when you receive it, you will be saved. The truth is this, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved.